Thank you for returning to another time of examining privilege. Please consider heading over to Patreon and showing your support by sharing this podcast or the Patreon page with your friends on social media. You might be surprised how many folks out there are hungry for exactly the kind of conversation that we have right here. Our last episode ended talking about privilege and about how I, at least I didn't acknowledge that I had privilege, um, mainly because I had also had struggle in my life. Admitting privilege is hard, and it doesn't mean that our privilege is absolute. Uh, we can have both privilege and oppression at the exact same time, and most of us, in fact, actually do have that kind of thing going on. It's something that a lot of folks experience and testify to when they say they don't believe in privilege. I, I know that's what I was definitely testifying to um, when I talked about that. It's just not an easy thing. It's always mixed. And that mix is really disorienting. And I think that's exactly what our system counts on. Because as a system that counts on setting up oppressions and divisions between people, the more we buy into it and the more we are constantly looking for power, we're already lost. Because it's the seeking of power within that system that is the problem. That's what we all have to learn to work on together. So, welcome to episode 7. Nothing like a little cheery start to the day. Let's do our best Patrick Stewart and engage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and so that's, again, with the postmodern or the critical theories under which uh, feminist thought or critical race theory, queer theory, all come under the, that postmodern uh, ways of thinking uh, accounts for the messiness of it. Yeah. You know, uh, that it, it's, it's going to be contradictory. And that's what I tell my students. They say, you know, it's a passive notion also of the great white male is that this is easy work. It's not easy. And we need to say it's not easy, you know, and come under, the, and that helps us to kind of fight through it when we get to those points of of saying it's like you say of, of fighting through those points where we where, where we sort of trip up and it becomes really difficult because what you're describing there is the matrix of um, and the intersexuality of class and race uh, class of elitism and racism and and gender that if yes. you know if we shift the wheel I like to kind of envision it as a wheel and the wheel turns one way well in one case. The the structure is such, and with race, the structure is such with whiteness uh, is being dominant, and um, black and brownness along the sort of scale is uh, being uh, subordinate and oppressed. Uh, at the same time, one can shift that wheel again, and class uh, for class, and we have issues of of wealth, uh, of of money. Um, uh, or not only wealth and money, depending on one defines class, but that's even the the the, the notion of education and all. I mean, it's uh, and and um, uh, sort of the elite, wealthy one percenters, um, uh, and the subordinate group being the poor um, uh, and um, and those who live beneath poverty. So that uh, right there, what what you're mentioning right there, is something I I really 
I'm wrestling with still and trying to find words around. I, I term one as um, absolute privilege or absolute power, and the other as, abs- as conditional power or conditional privilege, <laughs> because that's that's the mechanism that is used to keep white men like me in line. Um, is the fear of loss of my privilege. And I, the example that I use for people is if, if I said I can grab women by the pussy whenever I want, I will not be getting elected president. Um, and yet that man did. And I think there's a really important distinction that we understand. And this goes, uh, you mentioned last week when we were talking uh, Bacon's Rebellion and the, the this culture of those with absolute power deciding we can never have, and we will create laws to this effect. We can never have people with conditional privilege or, uh, uh, poverty or or all of these little fractures between them. We can never have them assemble together. And it, it, Uh we see that in our culture today, as we see some people vote against their own interests constantly. They've become convinced that socialized health care is going to kill them more than the fact that they have no health care right now and um, this capitalist system is eating them alive. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you brought that in because, you know, I mean, that's, that was kind of the perception of early populism. I think well, populism now, particularly in the uh, age of uh, tr- Trump demonism or <laughs> the demonic or something, I don't know, uh, in terms of the uh, what we have upon us now uh, is seen as um, as the poor um, poor whites uh, who are, are coming together and um, you know say that their interests are being taken by racial groups or by mm-hmm. immigrants and fighting that people look at that. But early populism, as as you mentioned, that was more of the like of the Bacon Rebellion. You know, uh, those groups that were poor whites, they were. First of all, they weren't even white. <laughs> I mean, yes, they, they were immigrants from different countries and uh, uh, who who were indentured servants. Um, some of them criminals and considered the most low life of, of uh, the, the lower ranks of, of European society, which is maybe why you know some of them are the way they are now, <laughs> the way they are acting. But you know when they united with um, um, African slaves, you know, I mean, it's, it's, um, uh, and, and some of those Irish servants were called slaves as yes. Ron Takaki in his book, a different mirror, you know, uh, and these, these, they come together and overthrow the plant planters, the elite class. Now you're right. The, the response was by the folks who became founding fathers of the country. We can't have this. <laughs> and, and the notion of race is, is created to divide them. You give, we're going to give these poor folks who look like us, who have physical characteristics like us, an opportunity to think that they're going to be wealthy like us. You yes. Know? And so, uh, and we're going to keep telling them that this group is going to take their interests away. We create this idea to keep them separate. And we, and what they did, they said that, you know, this will create a sort of permanent underclass among black people. Um, and, um, and, uh, it's, and, and it seems to, and, and, and it has worked. I mean, we look oh, yeah. at, we'll look at 2008, wondering. right. Yeah. And it intersects directly with the second shift material is this, mm-hmm. the, what happens in 2008 with the, the, the job loss situation in the recession 
is we see it's white men that lose their jobs more than any other group. And, and, and it's, it's this shocking, or maybe not more, uh, disproportionately. Um, it, it, because the white men were being paid more, they were the first to get cut in that particular round. There were a couple of studies that documented it. And then one of the things that I kept looking into that I couldn't find a whole lot of evidence or writing about, but I would read about in newspapers, is these, the number of these white men that become family annihilators. Mm-hmm. And it's this, so, like, this is how well that the destruction of Bacon's Rebellion worked, is mm-hmm. that these lines cannot be crossed by the white, great white male, so much so that they would rather kill themselves and their entire family, mm-hmm. rather than entertain the notion that races is, racism, is, racism is real, that sexism is real, that homophobia, you know, that all of these isms are very real and, and they have to deal with them and there's something important for them on the other side of it. Right. Well, you made me think of, of, of the quote that, uh, that, that, that said when said about white men losing the job that, uh, how does this go? When, when white folks catch a cold, black folks get pneumonia. Yes. <laughs> so, yes. It's, it's, Which, uh, and uh, we're seeing that in COVID right now. Exactly, exactly. That's exactly yep. what I'm going to say that, you know, with, uh, and sometimes I wanted the strategy when you hear today on the news that the president is uh, trying to get the Supreme Court to do away with Obamacare yep. and wants to slow down testing. I wonder, my conspiracy theory mind, you know, tells me that uh, there's something about getting rid of a certain group of people here, either the people that, you know, uh, won't be voting for you or uh, the racial group of African-Americans and the Latinos of immigrants and the poor farm workers, you know, um, who, uh, who are going to get it worse, you know, uh, that's, that's a very strong, powerful, dominant white male. But again, about the killing white, great male, you know, that I, I go to the site, I'm trying to study a little more and trying to be a little more, um, not complain so much as in my old age and try to look at the sides of resilience. Old age. Don't give me that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So I I had this thought when I was, are do you consider yourself a boomer? Um, I'm in between. I'm yeah. I I part, I call myself part boomer and part generation X. Yeah. Yeah. That's what, that's the way you read to me. That's why I was asking. Okay. Yeah. Right, be in between because, like, you know, like, uh, folks are. I, I remember 1968. You know, I remember yep. the death department. I know exactly where I was and what I did in elementary school. You know, I was drawing pictures of. You know, I remember the hippies and all that, and wanted to look up to them as well as had crushes on them as a little boy. <laughs> <You know? Yep. laughs> so, uh, but but then then and and so I can and I remember praying as a child. You know about the Vietnam War ending and all. I, those images were in my dreams, and all of us, you know, felt tied to that generation. And yet, the other end, uh, the the X or Generation X, um, you know, comes out of you know the Afrocentric, uh, the hip hop uh, generation um, uh, that would identify with the death of Tupac uh, rather than King. You yeah. know, um, uh, is uh, is where I am. A little bit too, not as houses as those who are younger, much younger than I am. 
but uh, the um, oh, you know, maybe you're, I'm sorry. We're going back to what you said about I think about working with white male students on on the on this uh, issue. Um, I think because of when you change the metric, my you know, I'm I'm you know, I'm. I'll say I'm, I'm I'm queer, but I'm big. I'm a big gay man, okay, <laughs> big black gay man. I'm very proud of that identity. I wasn't growing up because of church, and yeah. but uh, even with those, you know, growing up gay, you still grow up in a male in my community, black gay male. You still grow up in male community, and I find that what I do a lot of times is I use my masculine uh, masculine privilege to draw men into discussion about you know. Um, when, because when they start raising things about class, I'll, I'll respond to them and said, well, if we shift the, the, um, the matrix and let's focus on gender and mm. let's talk about, let's talk about being men. Let's talk about the stories and little games we played as little boys. Okay. Yeah. And I can go there with you. I can, I can talk about basketball. It was, I, you know, I didn't, you know, I could dance too with the, and do ballet, not ballet, but modern dance, you know, um, I, uh, but, um, but yeah, I, I talk about male culture and, um, and get them to kind of talk about that. I also, I also offer, I know there was one student way a long time ago in, um, back in Michigan, I was doing a, a dialogue group and there was one African American student and a white student. One, the white student came from a very small town in Michigan, like farming town. The black student came from upstate Michigan. And the two of them came in class. I was I tried to organize a class of two for the two of them to sit next to each other, and they oh. they walked in and saw what I was doing, and they went to the opposite class side of the classroom. It's like you're not going to force us to talk to each other because oh. they couldn't each other. You know, in fact, the white student told me when I put him in the gathering, she's like, I used to hate him. <laughs> and oh. and the other student would say it in class. I'm not saying that I wouldn't have a white boy, you know, and um. <laughs> I remember uh, uh, there was a shift and change in the white students, uh, and I wonder what it was about. Um, and there was a day in class where um, we were talking, and all the students were calling him, oh, you're white privileged male and everything. And I told the class, oh, let him talk. And so and I let him, I let him have to say what he said, and he talked about class and poverty. I said, you're, you, can, you can be right on this issue. But this issue, you know, you're, it's not, you're not right, you know. And um, that was the thing that changed him. He wrote to me, and I, I get these letters by white men and in, in, in the class I got one the other day from from um, from a student who's, you know, could fit all this sort of Germanic look, very blonde, sort of muscular, mm-hmm. you know. And said, you gave me an opportunity to talk, so maybe I should listen to others. Whoa. You know, and um, yeah, or another student who said he comes from a very conservative family, and he had space to talk about his, and he got challenged by the other students. And I know in these dialogue situations that that happens when he got challenged about maleness and all, and actually came to my office and with any very conservative Christian and my clergy background, I was like I can talk, I can go there with you on this because I was the one who carried my Bible in my back pocket in college and told yep. gay people there and women couldn't preach. Oh, I was into that, <laughs> you know, and it all came back to my fears. And, um, yeah, uh, this to, um, came back to me and said, 
because he took the class and he dialogued, he started challenging himself. He went to his father, who's conservative, and said, Dad, I don't think like this anymore. I don't, um, as mm. you're thinking. Said, you know, he thought his dad would, would get mad at him, but he said his father grabbed him and hugged him and says to him, you know, he says, I think like you do, but I just didn't have the tools to, to know how to do it. You do. You know, and I get these these stories like that, you know, that oh. gives me, particularly on those days when I feel like you, that I've been talking about this since just not the 1980s, but, you know, 1970s when we were trying to integrate our school and have uh, black assemblies because the teacher was canceling the assemblies, you know, and yeah. it's like this has been a white thing. Every now and then, you know, do, do we destroy it? Do we change the great white male? Do we get, or do we just get little peaks and glimpses of of, uh, of of rays of sunlight? Or is it really about a great white male or just the ecology of the world that we struggle between the yins and the yangs? Or, or is it all uh, of this? Yeah, yeah. The, I mean, the so tension. It, there's an intersection in what you just said with um, with the second shift, with the book. And I, I want to bring it out because it, it kind of touches on, well, anyway, um, so the names that she mentions in here, just for our listeners' sake, um, they're not real names. Um, this was a qualitative study done over eight to ten years, um, and it was done properly and well. Uh, but she said, uh, so she highlights the stories of Michael Sherman and Art Winfield um, as uh as these two men who had these different experiences that brought them to the place where, and, and I would say she, I'm not, she doesn't necessarily phrase it this way. In my reading, I think she managed to find two men whose value were in the home. One valued very much being a father, one valued uh, a good home enough that when his, his wife uh, just put down her foot and said, I'm out, we're not, I'm not living like this, that, he had to come back to it and say, all right, what do we have to change? So it's two men who were willing to change, um, their, their, uh, willing to differentiate themselves from, from manhood as the U S constructs it. Uh, it's page 187. And, and she says, men like Michael Sherman and Art Winfield lead the way into that third stage, but they've done so privately. They are tokens in the world of new fathers lacking a national social movement to support them in a public challenge to the prevailing ideal of manhood they've acted on their own. Not until the other Michael Shermans and Art Winfield step forward, not until a critical mass of men becomes like them, will we end the painful stall in this revolution all around us. Like just so this, that's, uh, just this mm -hmm. sense that it's a million conversations like that man went home and had with his father. Where his father just says, I, I, I wish I'd, I wish I'd had the tools that you have because I felt this and I, I'm, I'm hoping that my dad will read the will to change with me. I sent him the book. <laughs> we'll see if I get to get to engage with him on it, but it's, um, it is that we have to, and we have to kind of, we have to bring along the previous generations, at least in the sense that we need them to not crush what we're doing as we do this and they need to hear that this is coming from a very heartfelt place that it's not a rejection of who they were I, I mean I know who I am as a father is very much rooted in what my dad did yeah. you know I, I know that he loved me he he may not have always shown it even the way he wanted to yeah right 
Like the fact that I got to stay home with my kids and uh, <laughs> my kids are 19 and 21 now and, and they're back at home, right? Um, after I, I still love to see them still. <laughs> oh my gosh, dude. <laughs> so, so it's really funny because we don't, um, I mean, we, we had a really painful moment when my daughter came back from, mm. from college um, at the end of spring 2020 because mm. it was this, she had finally gotten a taste of being out on her own, having, you know, create her own rules. And, and our son's been here the whole time, but I know he's been chafing under it too. And I just got done doing a whole shit ton of anxiety work and therapy that really cracked mm. open that a bunch of, uh, and reading this book too was really rough because it, the number of times that women talk about their anxiety as, as homemakers was, mm-hmm. I was like, oh shit. So that was, that was a thing too. I didn't even know that that might be accentuating things for me. Um, but we, we all sat down after we unpacked the boxes from the, from the Toyota and brought it all in. And, and, and I just said, y'all, I, I have to do family differently. Um, and part of it is y'all's age and stuff. Um, part of it is I, you know, I'm, I'm having to do more for work. This podcast, the, the live stream that I do on Mondays now with Torian, um, like, I'm not going to be able to carry the weight of homemaking the way I did, and it's not appropriate for me to. In fact, it may never have been the way I did it because um, I just kind of became the perfect woman, you know, whereas a lot of, of women have said, well, I have to become the perfect man to be in the workforce. I went the other way in being a homemaker, and e- even the times when I colonized it and messed it up, and I, I talk about, you know, wearing wearing kilts and skirts, and I am, I'm always afraid that I've just colonized the damn thing. Um <clears throat> And it, but it was, it was amazing to me what happened in that moment and to see the kids, um, and, and my spouse, cause I, I've been afraid of that. She's been the breadwinner the entire time we've been together. Um, the last 13, well, no, we've been together 12 years. I've been a homemaker for, I don't know, 13, 14. So with my previous spouse as well, going back into that. Um, but it just this sense of obligation that I have to her that I know she, part of the reason she, she was very supportive of me being the homemaker is that she wanted my support. Even now that I'm an atheist, she, we, we sit down and we discuss her sermons because, okay. right, doing doing that work of like the human experience is still very much something I love and I, I, I still know scripture. Uh-huh. Uh, it's not like all that, that went out the window. But it that conversation to me was so scary because I felt like I was in danger of losing my place in the family. When I, when I, when I asked them to transform the way we were doing home, because I need them to stop acting like I need their help and more like we all have a task to do. And I heard that so clearly in this book that it's, it's Mm -hmm. this, you know, in, in the book, in the people she studied, it was men being like, well, she'll ask for help if she needs it. And, and that's the way it's been in in my experience as a homemaker. Is well, I'll help you do that, and I I would just go in the other room and cry. What's your place in your family? What endangers it? What anxieties do you hold around it? Thanks for tuning in today. I have to ask, who are you going to go share this with right now? Go do it. Look forward to seeing you on Wednesday for Episode 8.